Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Security and Secure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. My guest this week is my favourite male author of all time. Seriously, that is a fact. You'll hear a lot of the time people saying, oh, they're the best, they're the best, and they'll say it to every single person. You will never hear me say that there's a better male author than my guest this week. 11 books to his name. He writes the most incredible crime books based on an investigator called David Raker who finds missing people. And they always get found. Whether it's due to a clue in the wall, a brick out of place, or a rare book, David Raker will find them. And the man behind the David Raker series is the incredible Tim Weaver, who this year decided to not do a David Raker book and do a new one called Missing Pieces, which we'll come to in a bit. But first of all, let's welcome the legendary writer, Tim Weaver. Hello, Tim. Hey, Johnny. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm being deadly serious. You are my favourite male author. The David Raker series is just the best i've read every single one of them a little bit too quickly which i always realize afterwards because usually your books take me about four days each and then i go now i've got 361 days left to read until the next one comes along well thank you i mean it's lovely to hear i mean we were just talking off air about um about all this and it's just you never get tired of, of hearing uh people telling you how much they enjoy your books it is just something that is really humbling and, re- and really wonderful and it's just uh you know as a writer it's, it's kind of what you live for when you when you see people reacting to your books in a positive way but also being taken along by the characters and really becoming invested in the characters it's 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 incredible it's basically why you write you know so uh I feel uh, very lucky to do the job that I do, and I, I feel you know very fortunate uh, for that wonderful introduction. And I love that you love the books as much as you do. Well, you're very much in that unique position that you, normally with books, it tends to be with the types of genres that you're associated with. That when you bring a new one out, you've got all these new characters that you need to get used to, and a brand new storyline. Whereas with the David Raker series. It's always going to start with David Raker is here. He is an investigator. He's going to find a missing person. Then we go through the journey. And then you kind of get these little checkpoints, kind of three chapters, six chapters, nine chapters in with those characters that we are so used to. If you've read every one of those books, like Colm Healy, the ex-police officer, like Task, like Spike. And it just gives that narrative that we kind of know what we're going to expect. And I think that's what we like. It's why soap operas have always done so well, because we almost know there's going to be a beginning, middle, and an end to a storyline. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the advantages of, a, of writing a series. And, and to be honest, one of the reasons why I wanted to write a series in the first place is because you get to develop characters over a long period of time. And although there are, you know, like you say, there are certain checkpoints you have to hit and there are certain things that, you know, readers come back to a series because they like the familiarity of it. Um, but there are also things that you can do I think it's incumbent upon you actually in a series to to try and mix it up as well I remember my 
when I first signed with Penguin on my first book, I remember my first editor said to me, with a series, you want to try and get 50% same, 50% different. And what she meant by that was you need to give readers all the stuff that they love about you know the series and of, of and why they're invested in the series um not just the main character and uh, but the supporting cast and you know with the raker books it's the missing people and the mystery of you know um inexplicable disappearances but you also need to give them something because if you're just churning out the same old stuff book after book even when readers like a series they will soon become bored with it you know so at the start of every book, although I've got those familiar beats I, I hit in each of the Raker novels, I do spend a lot of time before I've even written a single word on the first page thinking about how I can make the book as different as possible from the one that preceded it. But what I do love about a series is you can, as I said, develop characters over a long period of time, but you can also have storylines running, you know, story arcs running for a long time as well. And, you know, although each of the the novels can be read as a, you know, as read as a standalone book. You can you can check in really at any point in the series. You are obviously rewarded a little more if you read from the beginning through to the end because over time you get to see how these characters came into being, but you also get to see those sort of background story arcs playing out over a long period of time. So it's it's one of the things that I love about writing a series. You know, there's things in you know books nine and ten of the Raker series that. I've been rumbling around since books one and two, and there are characters that appear and then aren't in it for a couple of books and then come back into it, you know? So it's it's that sort of stuff I love to play around with. And I also love to surprise readers by just taking the, the novels off in a new and interesting direction. So it's a, it's a great challenge. I love doing it. I feel very privileged to do it. I think that's the thing. And, you know, an example of that is like Colm Healy. We know that his daughter, uh, well, I don't know what I can, this is the problem. I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about because yeah. uh, what does one do? Because all the books are out, but, you know, someone might be listening now and do what I did, which was I got sent, I think I got sent like book four of yours about four years ago. And I was right. like, oh my God, I'm obsessed. And your yeah. publisher really kindly decided, publicist really kindly sent me every single copy of your book and then i went through book by book by book so i've read all 11 but i know everything whereas there'll be people listening to this podcast who'll go oh no you've sported it so i don't know what i can actually say but uh let's say com healy for example is one of these characters who has his own background storyline that does run through to do with his family let's say it yeah. like that and so you're right you can bring that up because uh he may have had problems in his family that have given him his own insecurities yeah, absolutely, and and in in and you know in a in a weird way, um, those I mean, because I don't actually plan my books, you know, I just I, I mean I start out really with an idea of what the central disappearance, the mystery is going to be, but that's pretty much it. I might have a few other little things that are kicking around. I don't tend to plan them out, and and the reason I don't plan them out is because I want the book to I, I want to be able to react to the book in a way that a reader reacts to it, and you know so. I find that when you plan things out too much, they become a little less spontaneous. And some of the best sort of twists, some of the best storylines that I've come up with have been really um, developed organically as I've gone through. And, and Colm Healy is a good example of that. I mean, I introduced him in book two and he was really, I had no plans for him beyond book two, really. He was just going to be a one-off character, but I, I ended up loving writing him so much. And when I got him and Raker on the page together, they just they just felt right together, like interacting the way they interacted with uh, each other, the way that they in many ways mirrored one another and yet are so different that um, I knew immediately as soon as I finished uh, The Dead Tracks, which was my second book and the first book that Healy's in, I knew I wanted to write and write about him more. And of course he hinted about this case that had basically haunted him for years. And to prove my earlier point, you know, that was in book two and, 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 and they eventually get around to him and Raker eventually get around to looking into that case in book six. So it's, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great kind of uh, canvas on which to paint. You know, you can, you can do all this, all this kind of background work and it really pays off um, for, for long-term readers. But, but like I say, you know, there's no barrier to entry. You can come in at any point, but I do think, you know, you're right. You do get a, maybe a, a fractional more sense of reward when you read it in order because you can just see how these things go on. But again, like a soap opera, you can start watching a soap whenever you want. You know, EastEnders, for example, has been on since 1985. 
and most people who watch EastEnders now probably didn't start it in 1985, but you get to know the characters, and then you get to know a bit about their past, and then it might be that you watch on drama an old episode, and you go, oh yeah, that makes sense, that's why that happened. And so it's the same with your books, again, you know, you've got those characters that you can almost look at in retrospect so david raker's daughter for example you can learn about their journey in past books even if you know she exists now it doesn't necessarily make a difference if you knew that for example raker had a daughter or when raker didn't know he had a daughter and when he had darren his wife alive and not alive yeah exactly and and i think you know like i always uh, when i finish a book i always i mean i've always i'm always very conscious of it but i when i send it to my editor she always does um a sort of sense check on it which is to say that she'll what, what you don't want to do is you, you don't want your book coming out and it just be full of like explanation and exposition about you know how these characters got to this point and all that sort of stuff so it needs to be subtly sewn in you know and so she does a sort of sense check for me and make sure that it's subtly enough to to be sewn in for new readers not to feel in any way sort of out of it and then like you say if they enjoy that book then they they have the opportunity then to go back and and read the other books and see how um and see how they all come together you know i got i got a message the other day from a from a reader who said who had just um read one of the later ones and then she went back and and read uh, the first two and she she was she said to me oh it's wonderful to be able to find out you know like to see that first meeting between raker and healy you know so it's it's you know there are rewards actually for coming in later or coming in later in the series and going back and and rereading, you know, there are those rewards where you get to see how these characters came into being and how these storylines uh, played out and also how these cases all affected Raker because one of the big things for me from the beginning was that what I didn't want these books to be is I didn't want them to finish and then by the next book he's totally, like, forgotten everything that happened there. It's had no effect on him once well, at all, you know, and he started as if from new. These characters, uh, these cases, sorry, should have a massive effect on him because they are major cases that are, you know, incredibly traumatic. And if they were real life cases, the, you know, they would play on a person's mind for a long time, you know. And I think it's important to have the, that residual sort of rollover from one book to another where, you know, Raker doesn't forget case that came before. So often you will find in the books that when he start, when the book starts off, he, he will reference the case that he worked before to give you know, the readers the reassurance that you know all of this is part of his history and it's not to be forgotten a hundred percent and that's why when he's been stabbed and he's had a brick thrown at his head and he's been he's been battered and bruised all the way through these books but also has also faced mental health issues like depression and anxiety mm. and especially in the latest one which came out two years ago called no one home he faced that he may have seen his ex-wife again and that insecurity came out so you're right you can't just hide away from that because those are issues that are going to carry you for life yeah and you know one of the one of the things i wanted to do from the start was you know i'd read before i wrote my first book i, I read a, a lot of thrillers you know and and, and there's many amazing you know, thriller writers out there but one of the things i wanted to do was create a character who wasn't he's obviously an expert you know like he's he's very very good at finding missing people you know otherwise <laughs> There wouldn't be much point in the books if he couldn't do that. But so he's obviously got a talent for that. But Raker is in many ways quite vulnerable. He's vulnerable because a year before the start of the first book, his wife dies very young from breast cancer, and he is basically using missing people as a as a crutch, a way to kind of fill the void in his life that's been left behind by the woman he loved above all others. So He's very vulnerable um, because he's grieving, and that is in the early books used by many of the people that he comes up against as a kind of weapon. They try and weaponize that uh, you know, grief and that sense of loss. But he's also vulnerable you know, physically because he, he is a, he's a tall guy, he's you know, decently built, but he's not a Jack Reacher kind of guy. So he's not going to take down 10 people by himself in a bar brawl. You know, so this is a guy I think that is is you know, like I say, very vulnerable. He can be got at quite uh, relatively easily, and you know, I think that you know, I, what I hope that does is it makes the stakes a bit higher because every with every book, you know, he's he's in some way attacked, whether it's physically or psychologically. You know, and like the book you mentioned, you were gone was a very much a, a psychological battle for him because it was you know this apparently impossible turn of events where his dead wife turns up at a police station you know all these years after he buried her 
so you know it's it's he has to figure out you know what's going on whether it is his wife or and if it is what the hell is going on you know so it's 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 a kind of combination of things and i think it's important that that he is kind of vulnerable in that way because it makes the stakes high but it also makes him a little bit more realistic you know um so that's my hope you know my hope is you have to suspend disbelief in some ways because obviously it's a work of fiction and you can't pretend that it's in any way realistic for one person to face this many obstacles and terrible cases but i mean i mean I think readers are very accepting of that but i think once you've established the rules of the game in the book so that is to say that raker is not a reacher style tough guy you can't suddenly have him turn around in book eight and like you know go full on like keanu reeves in the matrix and kind of like punch everyone's lights out and you know walk out whistling so it's you know you've got to once you establish those rules in the first first book you have to stick to them and one of those rules of the raker series is that this is a guy who could be like you and i you know he's a very uh, ordinary guy in a lot of ways and yet you know he gets into extraordinary um sets of circumstances and that's not to say he's not bright and he's sm he's super smart and he's driven and he's all these other things which are important but he is essentially a little bit like you and i but that's what i like about it and i think even more so the fact that he isn't this tough jack reacher type guy it's the fact that He's so clever and you could have 300 police officers working on a case, but only David Raker, and this is talking about realism, only David Raker would find a brick slightly out of place. Or I think there was one of your books and I don't, I can't, the problem is they all kind, they don't blow into one now because I've been reading them for so long, but I remember little bits. So for example, there was something about a note in a wall or there was a passageway in a wall in one of your books. Have I made that up? In a no, room. You, you haven't. But do, do you know what? It's it's all right to say that because I've written I've written those books and I can't remember everything <laughs> about them. So it's, um, it's it's fine. But there are you know like Raker is, uh, you know like Raker is is, I, I suppose like he is a. I mean he used to be a, a, an investigative journalist before he took up took up missing persons. So he's very much an outsider in many ways because he takes on these cases and, you know these cases are are have normally hit hit a brick wall in terms of the police side of things and so he's taken up these cases when the, the police have not been able to solve them and so that immediately you know makes him um person a non grata really at the you know at the in police forces because they don't you know they obviously don't like people sniffing around their cases and trying to solve them for them so he's very much an outsider but and, and he like i say he was a journalist so he's not a trained police officer but he's a very good detective and one of the things that raker is is he's very perceptive about the small things and they could be very very ordinary things that you know you someone else might not notice but he's very you know very good at spotting those tiny things that end up leading to massive massive revelations and i think that's i think you know obviously it's not for me to judge but i think that's one of the reasons you know one of the things that people like about the series is that often they spiral into these big epic kind of investigations from really very small beginnings, you know, very small things that have been missed by the police during the initial investigation into these missing people. And and that's kind of, as we talked about earlier, one of the sort of beats of the Raker series is that, you know, he will find a tiny little uh, thing that has just been missed and that will then become something, you know, snowball into something much, much bigger. And that's down to you, Tim, as a writer, because... So much of the time on TV, it's spoon-fed to us, whether it's words that are written or it's picture, you know, line of duty, for example. The big conversation for the past eight years is who is H? And we've had to have those pictures up on the wall in every single episode to remember that storyline. And yet what you're doing is you're bringing those, we're bringing those words alive that you're writing. And we've got to remember what's going on as much as you do. Using Line of Duty as an analogy, have you got a massive board of uh, lots of string and lots of post-it notes? Because it is so complex, and then you always bring in and which I love that I love that you do this, and so many authors now do this is having a separate story which runs alongside parallel to it of something that happened in the past, and then they come together, kind of two thirds of the way into the book, and then it starts to make sense because. At the beginning, it will never make sense. And then uh, the extra story, and then suddenly it just works. You go, ah, oh, now I know what's going on. Now I need to read back all the extra stories to then make sense of what's going on now. 
and then you yeah, just I'm... it flows so how do you manage to map that out well like i said i don't really plan so a lot of this stuff is is kind of as crazy as it sounds kind of in my head i sort of had a fit thought the other day that you know if i killed over and died tomorrow like a lot of this information would be anywhere you know it would be it would be lost and at some point i probably should write it down all these little connections and stuff but but no i don't really uh, have it written down i mean i do have post-it notes you know by my computer as you know when i'm deep in a in a book just to remind myself about all the things that are kicking kicking around but i don't tend to have i haven't got like a series bible or anything like that i just kind of know all these I know the major link, major characters that I need, you know, so um, that's the most uh, kind of important thing. In terms of the two storylines that run concurrently, yeah, I mean, that's a device that I've been using in the in the Raker series. Actually, I used it in my standalone as well uh, this year, but it's, it's, uh, it's just a nice device, I think. And what always surprises me is that when you uh, put that out and having done it for so long now, you know, and in, in, the, in the Raker series and in Missing Pieces as well, there are two... Uh, missing pieces being my standalone um two, you know two storylines and one is one is in italics they're very like visually different so you know they're two different storylines but what always makes me smile is that you'll you'll see like you, you might get tagged in on on reviews or whatever that people have done of your your books and I'll, occasionally i'll go and uh, have a look at them and uh, they always say you know oh i didn't you know i, I really couldn't understand how these things were related and they don't have faith that uh, as a writer that you're going to pull it together even though i've done it every single book you know for 11 years um and the, the good example of that was was no one home which was my last raker which came out last year and um, there are two storylines in that there's obviously raker's storyline where he's looking into the disappearance of a of a whole village uh, but there's also another and that's all set in yorkshire in the present day and then there's another storyline that's set in L.A. in 1985 about a female um, sheriff's detective uh, who's investigating this death in this motel. And so many people I saw when I saw reviews were like, I just had no idea how these two would ever come together. I thought they were totally irrelevant to one another. And I was thinking to myself, but they're never going to be irrelevant to one another. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written them, you know, but it's 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 part of the fun, I think, because you kind of keep readers guessing all the way through and especially no one home was an interesting one because they were so different they weren't just they weren't just um historic you know one was set in 1985 and one was set in 2020 it was that they were so geographically diverse you know one was in LA and one was in Yorkshire and so that was fun kind of keeping people guessing about how those two storylines were going to come together but that is for me that's part of the fun and part of the reason I don't plan is because you need that stuff to develop organically so you can get to view it kind of how a reader would view it. You know, you get to certain points where you're thinking, as a writer, you're thinking, I think the reader's going to think he did it or she's thinking this or he's doing that. And then, so I'm going to take it in the opposite direction. And I think it allows you by not planning to react in a way that you couldn't if you're working to a very stringent plan. I 100% agree with that. 100% agree with that. So that's the David Raker series written by Tim Weaver. Now let's go to the Tim Weaver side of it, because you are a very, very clever man, Tim. And that's not even just the writing, it's the little clues. Like we said, the really, really small clues, like a brick out of place or a laser beam or, you know, a CCTV camera in one spot looking in the wrong direction or, you know, or a phone box nowhere near a CCTV camera. You know, I could go on for hours about how, you know, impressed I am with the writing. Where does that come from from you? Because there's a level of creativity to just write a book. But there's an, another level to do what you do. I'm not sure it's something that you you can really put your finger on exactly. I mean, because one of the questions you get asked a lot as a writer is, you know, where do you get your ideas from and stuff? And I always think, well, I get them from my head, you know. Like, <laughs> they, they pop up in my head uh, and then I use them. You know, for me, ideas have never been the problem. What The, the real challenge as a writer, I think, is you get ideas coming to you all the time. So it's not really an ideas thing. It's more about which ideas to use. And so for me, it's really, once you get these ideas, you have to start thinking about which ones complement, you know, which ones. So it's, you write, obviously I write every idea down that I get because you never know if you might come back and, and use it at some stage. 
And what I find is that when you start sort of mapping it out in your head about, you know, this idea is good and it could complement this idea and I could use these two together. And, and then you start thinking more broadly about, um, well, that would be a good twist if someone found Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Like this or, um, you know, this, it wouldn't be cool if this character turned out to do this or, you know, be associated with this. And, and so it starts with just a, a collection of disparate ideas, really, that you then, then the real job for me is, is, kind of meshing it all together and once you've meshed it all together then you get these and you're writing it you then get these organic moments i was talking about where you can kind of hopefully make yourself look more impressive than you actually are by coming up with these you know clever little moments where people were like oh that's that's cool oh that's a cool twist or i never saw that coming or whatever but it really isn't something that for me, anyway, I mean, other writers are obviously very different, but for me, it's not something that um, is there from the very beginning. It's something that, that kind of develops as I'm going based on how, you know, all these all this stuff kind of uh, fuses together. And also, you know, in terms of characters and that sort of thing, for me, characters don't come alive until you get them on the page. Um, there's no way I would be able to create, in inverted commas, a character without... Uh, by putting it into an Excel spreadsheet, you know, and just saying, oh, right, okay, and on page 96, I need to introduce this character. For me, you know, like, the, that that sense of who these people are and their decisions and the things that they end up doing uh, really come about once they're interacting with other characters and once you're sort of writing about them on the page. So, again, that is one area where you get these hopefully really cool moments coming out of is just from writing these people and really getting to know them let's take it back then to around 2008 2009 because those characters who we do know we didn't know then and you Mm. were on your way to writing chasing the dead it was the story about alex town's body that was found and for those who are in the publishing world when you're trying to get that book published who don't know who David Rakers is because obviously it didn't exist, how hard was it to get published? Because the expectation of what you're trying to do, which is really clever, 
we haven't really seen before. It was a very new wave of writing a thriller book. Yeah, I mean, it was very, very hard. Um, it took me about 10 years to get published. Uh, that's not 10 years of sort of constantly writing the book, by the way, either. That is, you know, that is 10 years of writing the book and then probably being rejected by every literary agent in London at some point. It certainly felt that way, you know, like for about three to four years, I was just getting no, you know, no thank yous through the letterbox all the time. You know, it was a very dispiriting experience. And that's probably the point at which a lot of people give up, you know, or they go and write another book or whatever, because it is, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to constantly get rejected. It makes you doubt yourself all the time. Uh, and that's a really difficult thing, you know, like this. And, and to be honest, and we may talk about this a bit later on, and maybe with something that's particularly relevant here, but, you know, this, the, the process of self-doubt, the, the sort of feeling of self-doubt that you get is is an almost constant problem when you're writing, uh, uh, I find. You know, like I'm constantly doubtful about what I'm writing even now. But particularly before I got published, you know, you have no frame of reference. You have no experience of writing. You don't know that when you write a book, it is that crushing sense of self-doubt is just part and parcel of it. And you have to kind of push through it because I didn't know that at that time. I was just got really down about re being rejected the whole time. And I think part of the problem with these rejection letters is that except for a few where someone might write on it and say, I liked your writing, but I don't like the storyline or the story is good, but something else is wrong with it or whatever. You're just basically getting standard rejection letters. You're getting things like, we haven't got room on your, our list at the moment, or we didn't feel your book was strong enough to represent it. I didn't love your book enough to represent or whatever it is, you know, and it's hard. It's just really, really hard, you know, and, and, you know, there were a few moments where I thought, is this even, is there any point in this, you know, because it's just, everyone hates it. The very best thing that happened to me, obviously in more ways than one, is when my daughter was born because, oh, you know, when you have a baby, it turns your life upside down. So I took about six months off from uh, writing, you know, working on this book and sending it out. And uh, and so after things had settled down a bit at home, I went back to it in the evenings because I was still working as a journalist during the day uh, back then. And um, I went back to it in the evenings and looked at it. And after six months away from it, I felt like I had an epiphany. You know, it's like a real road to Damascus moment because I looked at this book and I was like, oh, right, that's why it's being rejected. It's absolutely terrible. So I went back to to it and, and sort of rewrote a lot of it and then, you know, spent a year doing that and then sort of took a long breath, a long, deep breath, and then sent it out again, started sending it out again. And this just proves how massively subjective the whole industry is because I ended up sending it to one of the agents that had uh, agencies that had rejected me the first time and within about three days I got a call from this agency and the agent my agent who I've got now you know she had only just started at this agency and the person that she'd replaced had rejected my book but she absolutely loved it so she she took it on and then you know about I don't know maybe eight and ten months later I had a publishing deal with Penguin but from the point at which I started Chasing the Dead to the point at which I actually had a published book was probably about 10 or 11 years. It was a long, long period of time. And it was really, really hard. And um, I think it's not a period that I will ever forget. And it's also important not to forget that. And I think authors, I suppose it's true of any, any you know, entertainment or art field or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think writers who have, had a struggle to get published definitely appreciate it a lot more you know when the thing the good stuff comes along you know and so i had a small small start only only penguin were interested in me every other publisher rejected me so i had you know agents rejecting me at first then i had publishers rejecting me at first but um you know i had a small start really tiny advances to start with and it wasn't really until uh, book four, which got into the Rich and Judy book club uh, and sort of changed the trajectory of my career that I was able to go full time. So I wrote four and a half books while I was working as a journalist. So it was really, really hard those first years. And uh, and it's, it's a period of time that I uh, look back on, you know, not with not with fondness exactly, but I look back on it because I think it was a struggle, but it was a struggle that was ultimately worth it. That's the problem, though, that 
that self-doubt that comes into it when this is your baby. Only you know how to write the David Raker series. No one can really tell you. Yes, you can have an editor who can finesse it, but this is your ideas at the end of the day. And people are buying into it because of you, not because of the publishing house. You know, I work in an industry where I know all the different publishers, but the average person on the street doesn't go, oh, I need to buy that book because it's a Penguin book or it's an Orion book or it's a Hatchet book. Yeah. People are buying into it for you. And that self-doubt that you find with a book like that and with a book that's so complicated, like the David Raker series, is really hard because no one can really understand it but you. So how do you translate that into the wider world of, I'm not able to deal with this book because anyone else would go, okay, we'll just go and do something else. You know, you're an amazing journalist. Go and carry on doing journalism. Don't just decide to be an author. You either have that drive in you to kind of succeed or or you don't, you know. And I'm not saying for a moment that I'm some crazy driven person who, you know, is, you know, wants to get to the top of the tree and just be the, you know, the be a badass the whole time. That's not that's not my personality at all. I realised from a pretty young age that I, that what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a book. You know, that was like for me the the ultimate dream. I loved, I've always loved writing from a, you know, when I was a teenager, used to write stories. And so for me, it was something that I really, really wanted to do. And although I did really enjoy journalism, in the, especially in the latter year, I mean, I was a journalist for 18 years, journalist and ed- editor for 18 years. And, uh, you know, I, was ma- I worked in magazines. And the, but I would say the last five to six years as an, as an editor running magazines, it was less fun for me. And so I wasn't, it was a lot of office politics, a lot of middle management pressure. I hated the sort of middle management crush. So for me, it came it came from, you know, I just sort of had to think about it from a practical point of view as well, which was that do I want to just give up and let go of any opportunity I might have to, number one, be a published author, but number two, do something different to what I'm doing at the moment, which... I'm happy enough in, but I'm not as happy as I could be. And so I think that was what kind of kept me going was that I thought this is a potential opportunity. This is a potential opportunity to do something that I really would love to do, but also do something that's different to journalism, uh, to a job that I increasingly am not enjoying as much as I used to. So that was one aspect of it. In terms of handling the self-doubt, I think the more experience you get, the the more books you write, the more you realise that it's all part of the process. For me, what happens is that, you know, the average book length for me is probably about 130,000 words. I'll start off with a book. And when you start off on writing a book, you're like, this is great. I'm really enjoying it. It's something fresh because you've just come off another book where it's been just a grind and you've been editing it, editing it, editing it. And then you have to, you know, go through all the edits with your editor, then through the edits with the copy editor, then you read in the typeset proofs to make sure there's no mistakes in it. So there are a lot of stages to a book. And by the time it's finally done, you are so completely done with it that you don't ever want to see it again. So when you start a new book, you've got that initial kind of super, super excitement about doing something completely different and new. And there's a part of you that's like, I can literally you know, within reason, do whatever I want and take this wherever I want to go, you know. So there's that kind of real excitement about starting it. And that will keep you going probably for me until about thirty to 40,000 words. And that's when the doubts kick in for me. What happens is that you, because you're getting used to the story by then, you're getting used to the book, the characters, that sort of thing. You then start to think to yourself, is this any good? I, I don't know if this is any good. Are these characters any good? Is my storyline any good? Because you're getting used to it. You're working with it every day. You lose, you start lose rapidly losing that sense of perspective on it. You know, that perspective I talked about earlier where I took six months off and then came back to the book. You know, you don't get that luxury when you're working on a one book a year schedule like I am. You know, you just have, and it takes me 10 months to write a book. So you just have to write a book and you have to, you don't get the luxury of saying, I'm going to take three months off to kind of clear my head. It just doesn't happen like that. So you hit that wall of self-doubt and, and it's just stuff like, is this any good? Are these characters any good? Is the story any good? But it's also stuff like, this could be the book that find, finds me out. Maybe I'm a fraud. Maybe I'm like not as good as I think I am. What about if this book isn't as well-reviewed or well-liked or doesn't sell as well as the last one? You literally get hit with all of it, you know? 
And now I know that that is just part and parcel of, you know, being a writer and working to this schedule. But when I was you know, starting out in books one, two, and three, oh, it was awful. Honestly, it was dreadful. Like you were just, I remember with book three vanished, I wrote about 40,000 words, maybe 50,000 words. And I thought, this is just garbage. Like this is no good. And I remember scrapping almost all of it. And this was when I was working as a journalist. So I was working quite irregular hours. So I was trying to squeeze in the writing of a book in the evenings and at weekends. I mean, I was exhausted as well, so that didn't help. But I just was crushed with self-doubt and just not at all sure about anything. And so those early years were a real massive learning experience for me. And, you know, 11 books in now, I can handle it a bit better. But it's only really through repetition and experience that I've uh, been able to get there. And I think if you talk to any other authors, they'll they'll basically say the same thing, which is that they also experience that real sense of self-doubt about whether they're writing, what they're writing is any good at all. And it's because you, as I say, complete, are so close to it that you have no perspective on it. I'd actually be deeply suspicious of any writer that got to an end of a book, of writing a book and was like, do you know what? That is absolutely amazing. I think I've absolutely nailed that because I think, that would just be a completely, to me, completely alien, you know, reaction. And I, and amongst all the many, many writers I've talked to over the years, almost no one has been like that. So I think it's a very common thing, but when you're really in it, you are really feeling like it's not a common thing at all, that it's only you that's suffering that way. Well, then that all changes 10 years later of the David Raker series, because this year you brought out a new book called Missing Pieces. And there is... No connection, I'm going to say, to David Raker whatsoever. It's a standalone book about a girl called Rebecca who uh, basically ends up on another island and it's following her trying to stay alive and then she's being chased for information that she doesn't know that she has yet thinks that she has. That's very different from the David Raker series. So 10 years later, you've built that insecurity you must have done again into self that of can I actually write another book that isn't in my comfort zone? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, although uh, just, just dialing back a bit before I talk about missing pieces, one of the things I, I mean, I did say that when you start out about a book, you're like, Oh, this is great. I'm really excited about it. But there is also a small part of you at the start of every book who thinks, have I got it in me to write another book? And, and I know that sounds ridiculous after you've written 10 books or 11 books as I've done now, but honestly, it's, it's a real, it's a real thing. Like you sit there and you think, you know, because the process of writing a book is so all-consuming and it takes so long and you you know so many words and it's and with a thriller there has to be so many you know different parts of the puzzle and it all has to work together so brilliantly that there's there's just a lot of like balls in the air you know that you're having to juggle and I think that at the start you do have that like residual doubt about maybe I am maybe I haven't got it in me to write another book and and I think that was exacerbated by doing this standalone. You know, I wanted to do a standalone because this story about Rebecca for me was one that had been kicking around my head for a while. And I tried to fit it into a couple of the Raker books as one of those side storylines that I talked about before. But it just never quite worked. And so I had this story about her that I wanted to write. And after No One Home, my 10th Raker book came out. I felt like that was a good jumping off point for just taking a year out and trying to do this standalone. And I thought the lovely byproduct of that might be that when I came back to Raker afterwards, I would feel refreshed and I would be able to, you know, take, you know, do something with a series that was really cool. And because I'd have, you know, I would have had that distance from Raker, a distance from that, that world. But you're right, starting this standalone, although it was a story I wanted to write, and although I had a probably more of an idea of where things were going to go than I would a normal Raker book. I still had that crushing sense of self-doubt and I still absolutely 100% worried about whether I had it in me to do it. Not just write the book, but do, but do a book that isn't a Raker book. I took a lot of like mental wrestling. I was really, really scared that I wouldn't be able to do it. And even when I did it and I finished it, I don't think I've been as nervous about a book coming. I mean, I always get nervous about books coming out because you always worry about how people are going to react to them and how they're going to sell and all that sort of stuff. But 
I don't think I've been as nervous about a book coming out probably since probably since the first book. I was absolutely terrified, really. The first, you know, when it came out, terrified about what people would make of it, but how it would sell and all that kind of stuff. So fear was the fear was real for me. And, you know, like it, it probably people don't maybe expect you to be like that after you've brought out so many books and they've all yeah, they've all done okay so you know it's not like i've had a really difficult time of it in terms of sales and stuff you know i've actually it's been okay for me but i think it's more it doesn't you know just because you've done all right sales wise it doesn't really stop you from worrying about the next book and the next book and the next book and i think when you take on a another project that is very different from the ones that you've done before there is that natural inclination to be nervous about it but it's it's more than just nerves for me it's just this fear i suppose fear of failure fear of not being able to do what i wanted to do fear of you know people absolutely hating it and fear of it not selling well that's the thing but then your name is tim weaver you've put your name to the book so naturally one would think if and this is what i do is i'll go on your twitter and you'll say you've got a new book coming out and then i because i'm following you and following your journey i'll be like right cool i'm gonna get it and if it's not a david raker but absolutely fine i'll still read it so i'd like to think that you've got such a big fan base now that it doesn't matter what you kind of do in the initial stage, people are still going to buy into it and still buy your book. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a degree of that. I mean, I'm very fortunate, you know, that there are people that have, like I say, you know, the series has done, this Raker series has, has done well. So, you know, I'm very lucky that I have got, a, you know, a lot of people out there who, who will pick up the book. But even if a part of you is accepting of that, I think that it would be a complete lie to say that, you know, Part, another part of me thinks doesn't sit there thinking yeah but they might look at this and think it's a standalone it's not a raker i'm not going to buy it you know that's like a that seem that might seem in the cold light of day two weeks after it's come out and it's done all right to be a bit irrational but it feels very very rational when you're you know before the book comes out because you're thinking about all the ways in which i, I the weird thing is i don't consider myself to be a hugely negative person at all but you do tend to think about the worst case scenarios, you know, and one of those worst case scenarios is people are like, nah, it's not Raker. I can't be bothered with this one. And it doesn't sell anything. And then, you know, you just think, well, that was a disaster. Why did I waste 15 months of my life doing that? You know, so it all sort of plays on your mind. And, and, and it's like I said, you know, it does seem irrational now, but at the time it didn't feel like that. It felt like a genuine bona fide concern there were a few people who tagged me in on negative reviews, which I've always got a bit of a bugbear about. I don't have a problem with people not liking my books. If they don't like it, then that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but please don't tag me in on it. Because when you tag someone in on it, you're like, oh, they must, you know, they tagged me in because they want me to read this review and you read it and then they slag your book off and you're like, oh, well, that's a real diner. And so there were like a, a few people who tagged me in who, who weren't so keen on missing pieces, and 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 I, and that was in the run up because it was you know, people who'd read early copies, and that was in the run up to it coming out. And I just thought to myself, this is going to be a disaster. Everyone's going to have this reaction. So that all is part of the part of the process. I think you know you you put something that you've poured your life into out there, and you have to accept that you know not everyone's going to like it. And part of that process is that you also worry that everyone's not going to like it. You know, I think it's just a natural kind of state of mind when you work so hard on something and put it out there to be judged. Well, if you are wary of Bart, buying missing pieces buy it because there's a special scene i'm gonna call it a scene that involves a bench that's gonna get you very excited david raker books are the best in the business if you've never read one of tim weaver's books of the david raker series please go out and buy one they are the best reads i can't talk about them enough they sit pride in place i've got my own bookshelf just for tim's books and they're all lined up neatly in chronological order because they honestly make my day it takes me about four days, like I said, to read one of those books and you're on such an adventure and the chapters are really small. And that's also really important when it comes to books. The chapters are quite small. They're, you know, 10 pages, if that, whereas some authors will write 50 page chapters. And I like to go, right, I'm going to start a chapter. I'm going to finish a chapter. 
I'll, I might read four chapters in one go. And if they're too long, it's very easy to kind of get a bit lost. So to kind of set that time aside each day to go, right, I'm going to read for half an hour and I'm going to read six chapters. And honestly, you will not be able to put the books down because you are so engrossed by the adventure. You're really part of it. And the writing is just incredible. There we go. Tim Weaver there. I wanted to showcase another one of my favourite authors and just get you thinking outside the box because we all have insecurities. That's the thing. We all have insecurities. It may not be that you've got depression or anxiety and you're taking medication for it. It can easily be just the idea of self-doubt, of imposter syndrome, of social anxiety that you know about, but you don't really know how to articulate it. And also it doesn't really affect you on an everyday basis, but when it triggers you, it triggers you. And that's what I want to do on this podcast is to open up that conversation and to say it's okay to not be okay. If you've liked what you heard on the podcast, again, please go on to Apple iTunes, like the podcast, follow it, and also leave a review. And as Tim said, don't leave a negative review, leave a nice review. Help me get it up in the podcast chart. So Apple iTunes, where you click subscribe or follow, go all the way down, leave five stars and leave a really nice comment and then share it on your social media pages with real friends. Let people know that you've listened to the episode and also that you're aware of Tim's work and you want other people to read it. It's really important that we pay it forward. I've been Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening to Skinny and Skinny. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.